Well, let's turn then to Titus and chapter 1. We're only going to read the first four verses of of chapter 1. I was mentioning uh, to Chris this morning that uh, this actually is only one sentence. You know, there are a few commas and semicolons there, but we're actually only going to be looking at one sentence tonight. And Chris said, so you'll be taking a big breath uh, before you, you read. There's a lot in this sentence, and it's a little bit complicated, but that's what it is. So let's read it. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Amen. Now, it's an interesting thing to think about that if any of us were were parachuted into the middle of the Amazonian jungle, for instance, uh, to a a group of new Christians, people who fairly recently had come to faith in Christ, where would we start? How how would we go about things? How, How would we begin to help them? Um, Now, that's exactly where we are, in a sense, with with Titus. Titus has been left on an island, uh, Crete, in the middle of the Mediterranean, with a very young group of Christians. So so young, in fact, that they, they don't even have some of the structures in place that we would normally recognize as part of a church. Basically, you know, if you look down the rest of chapter one, there are, there are not even any elders. There are no leaders. There's no leaders at all uh, in the church, and that's one of the things that uh, he's instructed about. And so, he's, he's got to start from there. And um, what this book does for us is it gets us back to the freshness and the newness and the beginning of what it was like in those early days uh, to see what their priorities were. Uh, and what was important and how they went about things. And I guess it's to hold a bit of a light up against how, how we do things. You know, sometimes over the years things develop, become kind of culturally part of the fittings, and maybe it's helpful at times to, to have a look at them all over again and to, to hold them up against, well, what the Word of God is, is revealing to us. And I hope that's something that comes to us here um, as far as Titus is concerned. Now, Paul is writing to him. Um, He's writing to to guide him. Uh, Paul had been in in Crete. In fact, Paul had been in Crete on more than one occasion. It's always quite interesting to me, anyway, to look at some of the historical background. The first time that Paul had been there, I don't think he actually planned to be there. You read about that in Acts 27. He's under arrest. He's been taken by boat to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. And uh, they go to Crete. And this is just the point where the big storm blasts down upon them uh, because the the harbor 
uh, in Crete wasn't suitable for winter time. And so he was on Crete at that stage. But he was obviously there subsequently along with Titus. You know, he says there um, in verse uh, 5, this is why I left you in Crete. So clearly he had been with him. He's not there anymore. If you look down at chapter 3 and verse number 12, Paul is now in a place called Nicopolis, which is in Greece, and that's where he's writing from um, to, to Titus. And he's, he's writing what is referred to as a pastoral letter. Timothy, First and Second Timothy and Titus are the pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters. What that really means is they're written to individuals to help them. Um, and there, there's, you don't find that there's a big problem that's cited here. Uh, it's not as if there's some major issue that has to be corrected. Um, all he's doing is he's giving guidance. Uh, he's giving help and instruction and support to, to Titus in his task uh, as he's left behind to try, as we can see here, to establish a church or churches on the island of Crete. And, and hopefully there are going to be lessons uh, that, that, that come to us uh, from this. Now, just to kind of transgress a little bit on, on next week's message, it's important just to, to look at verse 5 because it kind of sums up a lot of what I've been trying to say so far. I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order. So there were, there were some things that had been begun, but there were still some things that had to be put in order. Now, just to give you a brief little overview uh, of, the, of the book. Now, you can see that, first of all, in chapter 1, that involved uh, the identification and putting in place of, of elders, of, of pastors within the church. Same thing. People who were qualified, godly people who would help to shepherd uh, and instruct and support and nourish the people of God. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, if you look down there briefly, uh, is more to do with those who are members of the churches, these young Christians. And there are different categories of them. He talks about you know, the old, the young, the male, the female. They're all, they're all there, and there are instructions for what he should teach to each one of them. And then in chapter 3, it's not so much internal, but it's external. He looks about their, their relationship to, to their society, to where, he, where they live on the island of Crete. And by the way, not always the easiest place. Uh, you'll probably see he's pretty blunt, actually. Chapter 1, verse 12, he quotes one of their own prophets. And uh, he says, I mean, I think these days we would probably say Cretians rather than Cretans, which has other implications. For those of you who are medical, you'll know that there is a, a, a specific terminology Someone who's a cretin is somebody who's hypothyroid, somebody who's low in thyroid, okay? Significantly so. But there you go. Cretians, he says, are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So that's the environment. And chapter 3 talks about how they relate to society. And it talks about, for instance, submission to rulers and also... And this is a major theme, and I'll come, come to this a wee bit later on. The importance of good works characterizing the people of God among the people 
on the island of Crete. So that's a little bit of, of a kind of introduction um, and an overview. It's likely that uh, Titus is, is young, you know, in the same way as Timothy was young, although it doesn't specifically say it. He's certainly of the next generation behind Paul. And what Paul is doing is he's, he's kind of, he's passing the baton on. You know, he's, he's, he, he's giving a task to somebody else. And he's, he's trying to support him in that. Someone who he describes, as you can see here in verse 4, as his true child in a common faith. And that may well indicate that Titus was actually converted through the ministry of Paul. And, and, and he's his child in the faith. Titus is mentioned in a number of other places in, in the New Testament, accompanying Paul as part of his ministry team, if you like. Uh, you read about him in Galatians, you read about him in Second Corinthians, and the last time you read about him uh, in Paul's final letter is on, in the end of Second Timothy, and he actually says about him at that stage that he, he's no longer in Crete, he's actually in Dalmatia, maybe where the dogs come from, but I'll tell you who else comes from there, the Albanians, you know, Dalmatia is the Balkans, all right? Uh, near where Colin and Alida uh, work, all round about the former Yugoslavia area. And eventually, that's the last thing we, we read about Titus, working away up in that area uh, of Europe. So, let's come then to this, this sentence, this kind of, you wouldn't really call it a concise sentence, this complex sentence uh, that, in, uh, that really lays out a number of, of important points um, the two points that I'm going to concentrate on tonight, um, Johnny's picked up on one of them already, the idea of authority, and the second one is of priority. Um, in fact, there are a couple of priorities um, that, that we'll look at. But let's, let's look at this first idea of priority. And um, Paul lays out his credentials right at the very start here. Um, he says and describes himself as a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, now this is important. And the reason that it's important is <clears throat> that he's lending his authority to this young man. Now, it's a very significant thing. If you put yourself in Titus's shoes, here you are, left in Crete, to put in order things that have been left. And, you know, you, you need a sense of authority. You know, it's not just my word against somebody else's. And there are going to be people who will criticize. There are going to be people who disagree. There are going to be people who will be difficult. And for instance, if you look down at chapter 1, verse 10, it talks about those who are of the circumcision party. And this is this, is this group that we meet many times, specifically in the book of Galatians, Romans as well. People who, from a Judaizing kind of background, were saying that you can't be genuinely, truly converted unless you submit to circumcision and others of the rites of, of Moses as well. And this was fundamental to them, and it nearly caused a split in the, in the, in the early church. And they were there on the island of Crete, and he's, he's going to have to come up against them. And it's important that you know, he's got the authority of Paul, almost as like a kind of ambassador with, with that sense of authority. You know, Timothy was told not to let anyone despise his youth. And he, he needs this authority as well. So let's, let's look at the, the two ways in which he talks about his, um, his authority. 
Um, the first one is as a servant of God. Now, interestingly, this is the only time Paul ever refers to himself as this. He, he refers to himself several times as a servant of Jesus Christ, but he doesn't refer to himself any other place as a servant of God. Now, one of the reasons he, he perhaps does this is to do with this circumcision group. You know, because this would have meant something to them with their Hebrew background, with their Jewish Old Testament background. Because this was the kind of title, if you like, that men like Moses and Joshua and many others in the Old Testament adopted or had applied to themselves. And he says, in the same way as these people were servants of God, it would kind of echo. He said, I'm a servant. I'm a servant of God. Now, the, the word for servant, of course, is, is really the word slave. And it carries with it all the connotations that we would normally apply to slavery. And yet, he adopts this as far as how he describes himself as a slave of God. Now, what that really means as far as he's concerned, and this is how he looks upon himself is that God is my master. He has absolute mastery over me. I I don't belong to myself. And of course, he writes about this elsewhere, doesn't he? To the Corinthian church. He says to them, you know, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And that is a fundamental point, of course, to apply to all of us who perhaps we are not apostles of Jesus Christ as he was, but but we too are servants of God. I think we can apply that. And, and, And we have to again recognize the meaning of that and the implications for us. It's it's really the same as saying Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, he's my master. I don't belong to myself. He sets the tone, he sets the direction. I obey what he says. His word, with all that authority that comes from God himself, is is the touchstone for my life. And so, it's something that, that should be a challenge to all of us as we reflect on the fact of being a slave of Christ that he owns and he uh, directs us. The second way in which he refers to himself is as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the, the word apostle had, had an everyday meaning. Now, you know, we're used to the special meaning that comes to those who were described as the, the 12 apostles. But the, but the ordinary meaning of it was just the word messenger. And a slave often was a messenger. The master would would give him some instructions to go to the other side of the town and, and do whatever, and, and, he, and, and he would be his messenger. But that has been kind of lifted and uh, given this special kind of meaning. And, and of course, those who were witnesses of, of Christ and of his resurrection became recognized as the twelve apostles, and, and Paul was the last of the apostles. I just mentioned that because there, there, there are various Christian groups who, who would teach that there are still apostles today. 
you know, and, and people would take that terminology um, and apply it to themselves. Um, a verse that I think is very helpful uh, to understand that one is found in Ephesians chapter 4, where it's talk, talking about the fact that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So when you build a house, you know, the foundation is there at the beginning. You don't build the foundation again up the top. And the foundation was built on the apostles. There were only these men, the basic apostles. You do read about others in the book of Romans described as apostles of the church. And that's all that it meant was they were messengers of the church. They represented the church in a number of ways. But here we have his description as himself, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's laying down his authority. Now, this whole idea of authority, one of the points that, uh, you know, if, as you think now of, of, of Titus taking that on board and being able to have this letter in his pocket, and when anyone came up against him and questioned him, he could, he could, he could you know, point to sentence number one and say, well, here, here's my authority for doing what I am or, or saying or teaching what I'm teaching. Here's my authority. But the thing about authority, authority, as we all know, can be abused. You know, and authority shouldn't be abused. And in the church setting in particular, we, we are never to be high-handed or heavy-handed about how we display or talk about or exercise any authority that we might have. It's always to be done in a in a gentle and in a humble way. And, um, you know, there's, there's nothing that has done d- so much damage at times in churches as people who have been high-handed and, and arrogant in the way that they have, they have done things. Um, our authority is fundamentally not in ourselves, but it's from the Bible. And it's in the teaching of the Bible that we have that sense of authority. And it's not just anybody who goes up and says, the Bible says this, or the Bible says that. Because as we all know, people can misinterpret and uh, wrongly interpret the Bible. And so we have to have people who are recognized, who are qualified, and are in a plurality. You know, so it's not just one person away out here on the fringes who's teaching something and saying it's authoritative. And we'll come to that next week because that's, that, that lies behind the, the, the qualifications and the initiation of these elders. And, and, and these are the people who are to exercise authority uh, in, in, in the churches. So there, there, there's the first point anyway uh, that, is, that is laid out for us. And he says, you know, this is important in the uh, establishing of, of the churches in Crete. You know, it comes to um, some of the priorities. Um, these priorities are, are, are objectives that have always been true as far as Paul is concerned, wherever he's gone. And really what he's saying is, I think these are the kind of things that you should have as your priorities uh, and, and your task and your mission uh, on the island uh, of Crete uh, as well. And so uh, there, are, there are three main points uh, under this one. So the first one, uh, he says, 
Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Priority number one. You know, I I do what I do. I do it for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, that, that is basically evangelism. You know, that's a gospel focus, a gospel priority. Rather than being overly inward looking, he looked upon his priority as, as bringing people to the point of faith in Jesus Christ. All right? So, I mean, this is a, this is a big thing because this, this is the response that he looks for from people. Faith. So, well, what is faith? Okay? One of the, I was speaking to somebody this week and we were, we were thinking about Abraham in, in Romans chapter 4. He was a great example. He was the father of those who had faith. And um, here, is, here is Abraham, and um, he's told that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And, and he's childless, and he's an old man, and his wife is an old woman. And at a natural level, it's impossible. You know, the, all the laws of physiology, they're, they're, they just don't, they're not going to work. And, and, and it's said about Abraham that, you know, despite considering all of that at a natural level, he believed that what God had promised, he was able to perform. You know, and, and, he, and he stood four square on that. And he absolutely believed that when everything else said no, that God could do it. And it was that belief that God credited to him for righteousness. You know, and again, for us to get back to the, the, these basic things, because it, without faith, it's impossible to please God. The just will live by faith. That's the only way those who are going to be justified before God can live. It's, it's by faith. And, and that faith means that what God has promised I believe that he is able to perform and to just rest on that. Now, that, that's his priority. But look, look at what else he says here. He says it's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, I've, I've said that faith is the response. What, what, what is this then about the elect? Does that mean that, in fact, it's just all a bit fatalistic? That here are people that God has chosen... You know, and this, this is often misrepresented, I'd have to say. You know, this, this, this doctrine is, is, uh, is op- often caricaturized. I've got my false teeth around that one. Um, you know, that it's like these cartoons that people draw, and they're caricatures. You know, there, there is a, a semblance of, of reality about it, uh, but it's, 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 it's in a distorted way. Now, now what, what does the Bible really say about election? It, it does not mean that we're fatalistic. Fatalism means we just sit on our backsides and we do nothing. Because whoever's going to be saved will be saved. Because God has chosen them. So we don't have to have any kind of input or, or any contribution to that at all. That, that's not what it means. What it does mean is that salvation is a work of God. 
It isn't just a natural thing that I've got to drum up or my, my processes or creativity will bring around. It is fundamentally a work of God. You know, we go to Ephesians chapter 1, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Revelation says there are those and uh, their, their names were written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. So before Genesis chapter 1, before Adam was created, before any of us were were ever thought about on a natural level. Because God lives outside the dimension of time. And we find it so difficult to get it. Of course, we can't completely get our minds round about it. But God is out with the way that we think. And he chose us even before the world was created to be in Christ. To be destined to be conformed to the image of his son one day. It's the great purposes of God. It's a tremendous thing. And and in fact, it gives massive confidence to the gospel preacher to know that it doesn't depend on me. It depends on God. And it gives great assurance to every believer that it's a work of God in my heart. It's not about me holding on. It's about him holding on to me. And that's what gives the stability and the confidence in our salvation. Now, it is a real thing. I mean, Jesus himself spoke about this. If you want to go and and, and, uh, check one of the the seminal statements, it's in John chapter 6 and verse 44, where the Lord Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You know, nobody can just work this up. That's why we have prayer meetings. It has to be a work of God in a person's life. And so both of these things go together. We find that difficult, but in God's economy, that is how it works. There is faith and there is God's electing choice. It's for the faith of God's elect. Priority number one is evangelism and establishing the church. Priority number two, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So it's not just evangelism. It's what one of the commentators then refers to as edification. It's it's building up. It's about teaching. It's about maturing. It's about growing. And, And what this growing should lead towards is godliness. That's a very important point. He's not interested in theory. He's not interested in abstract talking genealogies and points of contention and angels on the pinhead of a needle and all the rest of it. Anything that is taught the truth of God, and this is how you know it's the truth of God, it changes people's lives. And people become godly. Godliness. Like God. Like Christ. Christ Christ-like. The fruit of Christ seen in people's character as they continue to get to know him. And and that's where, for instance, this idea of of good works comes in. And uh, on a number of occasions, 
uh, you can see that mentioned in the book. Let me just point, point out how frequently uh, it's mentioned. So chapter 1, verse 16, this is in a negative sense, talks about these people who are unfit uh, for any good work. Chapter 2, verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of, of good works. Chapter 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 8. Those who have believed in God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then in chapter 3, 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. You know, that, that, that's, that's a priority. Because you see, if, if somebody believes the gospel, places faith in Christ, this will inevitably follow. It's part of it. You see, that is brought out in chapter 2, verse 11, where it says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what does that grace of God do? Well, it trains us. See that? It teaches, it trains us to renounce ungodliness. And it trains us into godliness. So that is his priority number two. Final one, uh, as we work through the sentence, in verse two, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And the commentator I was mentioning earlier on said if the first one has to do with evangelism the second one has to do with edification the third one has to do with encouragement giving hope to people hope of eternal life that's the that he says titus that's that's what you've got to give to this is what i've been doing my whole life and i commend it to you as the approach that you have there on the island of crete give them hope preach hope to them encourage these people in their faith the hope of eternal life. To lay out for believers that blessed hope that, that Christ will come, that he will receive us to himself, that one day we will be absent from our bodies, but we will be at home with the Lord. We will put off this corruptible body and what we will put on will be, will be incorruptible. And, and one day the old order will have passed away altogether. And, and I will see the face of Christ one day. And when I see him, I, I will be like him. And, and I will experience all of that. The Father's house in which are many mansions. And to which he has gone to prepare a place for me. You know that... That inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away and that is there in heaven established for me. It's kept for me. I mean, that is all part of the great hope of the church. Not hope as we know in the sense of, well, maybe this will happen, but it's just pointing to a future that is absolutely secure and definite. And there's no doubt at all about it. 
And so these are the three priorities that, that he lays out. And he says, you know, God never lies. You know, that's one thing we can say. He never lies. And so with confidence, we can take all of these things to heart. And he kind of meshes together, he merges together again the, the, the ideas of, of time and eternity, which, which gives such a kind of majestic sense of, of grandeur to what we're involved in. He says, he, here is God who, before the ages began, before there were any ages that people have described as far as the history of humankind is concerned, before any of that, God promised. And yet, now, at this time, it's been brought to the fore through the preaching of the gospel with which I have been entrusted. And so there we go. As, a, as an introductory sentence, um, it takes some, some beating as it uh, emphasizes all these points uh, that are priorities for us today as far as the establishing of this church in Hebron as much as they were in the first century in Crete. Now shall we pray. Lord, help us to take these things to hand. Thank you for revealing your priorities for the establishment of churches. We thank you that we stand four square on the authority of your word. And so, Lord, for whatever has been of yourself this night, uh, we pray that will touch our hearts, uh, be some sort of encouragement to each one of us as we've had our minds set again on the teaching of Scripture. We give our thanks as we ask your parting blessing upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.